a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If this is your first foray into Wrong Think, I hope you find it an enjoyable experience. I don't know, it's not for everybody. That was kind of hard for me to accept at first. What? My message isn't for everybody, but it's true. It's, it's, it's really not. It's for people who are serious about owning their own worldview, not content for someone to tell them what to think. Yes, that means I'm not supposed to tell you what to think either. And I'm so glad that you could be a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers, people who are willing to question the narrative and think for themselves. Our show is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, also HSLAmmo.com, and my friends at Pure Light, that's pure-light.com. I have links in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com that will take you to each one of these sponsors. If you need their product or their service, I'd say please feel free to do business with them. Make sure they know that their message is reaching you. If you just want to drop them a quick note of appreciation and tell them thank you for being a sponsor, that's cool too. I know I spend a lot of time talking about the, the COVID restrictions, about masking and things like this, and Trust me, I, there are other topics I would much rather be talking about, but sometimes these things are so relevant. Came across an article today from Alan Stevo, who is kind of one of my go-to guys when it comes to mask issues. And I like this because he reinforces something that I think many of us have, have thought or, or maybe realized for a while now, and that is the mask issue is only partly about masks. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Just a few weeks ago, Senator Rand Paul was questioning Dr. Anthony Fauci. This was during a committee hearing, and he flat out asked him, if you're vaccinated, why are you walking around wearing double masks? How come you're double masked when, in fact, your chances of, of contracting COVID from anybody are almost nothing? And in fact, he came right out and said, this is nothing but mask theater. And Dr. Fauci took great exception. How dare you suggest such a thing? I disagree strongly. Oh, harumph, harumph. Isn't it interesting, though? I think it was either yesterday or the day before. Dr. Fauci was a guest on ABC's morning uh, TV show. And when they were talking about the masks coming off, he was asked, well, you know, how do you feel about uh, the masks coming off inside? And it was so interesting to hear Dr. Fauci be honest about the fact, well, you know, the truth of the matter is, even though I'm vaccinated, you know, I, there's a very, very tiny chance, almost no chance whatsoever that I'm going to get exposed to COVID from somebody because I'm fully vaccinated. But he said, you know, as, as far as I'm trying to think of the words that, that, that he used, he says, I didn't want to send mixed signals. And so that's why I continued to mask up every time I was inside. And, and let me just run that through the, the handy-dandy Brian translator. The appearance of towing the line on the CDC's rule was stronger than the science, which said, hey, Dr. Fauci, you don't even need to wear that. It was, in fact, mask theater. And it still goes on. And you'll still see, I mean, for, for crying out loud, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, I have heard 
is handing out fines to members of the House of Representatives who were on the House floor without a mask. I mean, come on, the CDC has said, look, if you're vaccinated, you're good to go mask-free, inside or outside. But that appearance, well, this is, it's, it's the whole we go above and beyond the rules. And that mentality is very disturbing. Jumping to uh, Alan Stevo's article, it's, it's titled, If You Wear a, ma- a Face Mask Anymore, You Have No One to Blame But Yourself. It's only partly about masks. And I'm, I'm sorry, you know, to be, to be beating the drum on this subject again. But this is also a phenomenal article about the importance of questioning what the media is telling you and being willing to go do your own research. In other words, to look at original sources and vet things for yourself. I know it's time-consuming, and I know it can be tedious, and sometimes it's even boring, and sometimes it leads you to dead ends. But it's worth it, and Alan Stevo explains why. He says, I live in one of the most locked-down places in the United States. I live in a place where obedience is demanded, where people are rabid about those who do not properly virtue signal on all topics as obediently as possible, where people become enraged at those who do not bow down. He says, I live in a place where corporate policies are not honored, but as long as someone can lord over you for a few moments, then whatever that person feels becomes that policy at that moment, no matter how cruel, how devious, how inhuman. He says, I live in a place where whatever the headline of the latest salacious news article was is honored as policy, as if it were the highest law of the land, as if it were constitutional. I live in a place that whatever, where whatever comes out of the mouth of high priest Fauci first thing in the morning is the new law, inviolable, that no one may for any reason challenge. He says, I live in a place where I walk through my day every single day with no mask ever for any reason. Now, he says, if I can do that in the place where I live, what is your excuse in the place where you live? Now, following through on this thought process, he says, in spring 2020, I couldn't wear a mask safely. Millions couldn't. He says, I had a personal reason for an individual accommodation to a face mask order. Because of that, in the spring of 2020, I had to figure out a way to go on with my life without a face mask. As the newspapers and television stations and media in general were speaking about the mandatory face mask orders in the spring of 2020, I recalled something that made me question the narrative. Having had some experience with the media in which they were not as trustworthy as they would like to be seen, I paused and verified what the media was reporting. I looked for the face mask-related and lockdown-related primary source documents that the media was reporting on and which the press conferences were based on. Now, he says, doing an internet search for face mask orders will free you from trusting the media. In the situation of face mask orders and face mask policies, that meant a simple internet search to find out what my local grocery store's face mask orders actually were. And he says, when I was traveling, it meant learning what a hotel's face mask policy was. When I was planning on buying a plane ticket, it meant first researching what the airplane's face mask's policy was what the airport's face mask policies were, what TSA's face mask policy was. He says, when I was walking down the street, it meant knowing what the county face mask order was, what the state face mask order was, what the city face mask order was. Those are a lot of layers of bureaucracy. And he says, I get it. I really get it. It's annoying. And he says, I'm sorry that you and I need to live through this, but it's the reality of the situation and one that we must accept. 
Now, Alan Stevo says, I was left with an option of trusting the media who had proven themselves not trustworthy, especially in matters like these, or I was left with an option of having a look at the primary source myself and being able to evaluate it myself. And he says, I did exactly that. I referenced the primary source, and what I found out is that virtually every policy and every order I came across had massive exemptions in them. Out of thousands, he says, I've only encountered one written policy that specifically denies all exemptions. So reading the primary source can be very empowering. The marketing copy placed on big signs uses the terms mandatory, required, or necessary. But the actual policy, the primary source, seldom uses terms like that. Often, he says, instead, the actual document that constitutes the policy uses terms like exception. It uses terms, rather, like exception, exemption, in cases which, all other times, all of which make it obvious that compliance was not required by any means. So the media weren't weren't the only ones telling lies and misrepresenting the policies. The marketing and communications teams within these organizations were as well. He says, what I found was that in places like Sonoma County, California, is that if every person living there would just read their face mask order, they would realize this mandatory face mask order exempts people who have difficulty breathing while wearing a face mask. Others would realize that despite all the hullabaloo about masks and religious worship, the people of Michigan could read their face mask order and see that face masks in Michigan are never required in churches. That's the actual written policy, regardless of what the media claims. Now, he says many other policies like these abound. Many other exemptions like these abound. So many that if you just read the local order, you'll realize how many people really fit into them and do not have to wear a face mask. Even in April 2020, how clear it was how many people fit into them. Now, he says it's even more abundantly clear. I'm going to come back to this in a few moments, and, and again, I, I apologize for bringing up this, this mask subject again. Personally, I'm encountering people wherever I go who are actually rejoicing that uh, the masks are coming off. I mean, I see people from all across the country posting on Twitter, I am sitting in a bar legally not wearing a face mask. And it is. It feels like something's been restored to you. And it has. My question is, why did you let him take it in the first place? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing an article I found this morning on lourockwell.com. This is from Alan Stevo. If you wear a face mask anymore, he says you have nothing, no one to blame, rather, but yourself. Now, he says if you're aware of the exemptions, you are one step closer to invoking those exemptions and never wearing a mask again. In fact, in spring of 2020, he says, I developed a method for invoking these exceptions, exemptions, rather. Many times the people at the front door of an establishment wouldn't understand these exemptions. Yet they were the official, publicly available written policies of the company they worked for. Sometimes he said even the managers wouldn't understand these exemptions. You, as a customer who could not wear a face mask, just had to be aware of them and had to be ready to invoke them. 
Sometimes living freely means you need to convince others to let you live freely. And sometimes that's as simple as educating an employee about their own corporate policies. Alan Stevo says, people were writing to me having quite a difficulty in invoking them. Some people were saying I went to the front door and no one knew that there were medical exemptions. Other people were writing me saying I went to the front door and started yelling about my constitutional rights and they turned me away. Other people were made to go through all sorts of strange, strange contortions. But his point is this, lots of people live life unmasked and it's almost way easier, it's almost always way easier than you think. Alan Stevo says, along with hundreds of readers of LewRockwell.com, I was able to develop a technique that works very, very well and works in at least 95% of situations. He says, I wrote a book, Face Mask in One Lesson, to describe this technique and to elaborate on the other 5% or so of the situations in which it doesn't work. But he says, this works so well, so often, that I feel comfortable saying the only reason anyone should ever wear a face mask at this point in spring of 2021, is because they want to be wearing one. He says there's no reason anyone should ever feel like they should have to be wearing a face mask, especially knowing that's not what's best for their body. There's no reason anyone should ever be wearing a face mask if they're not able to safely wear one. And there's no reason anyone should ever be wearing a face mask at this point if it's something they truly do not want to do. So if you want to be wearing a face mask, you believe that's what's best for you, and you believe it's best for others, then he says, please, by all means, wear your face mask. Live a life in denial of the science. Live a life harming yourself. Live a life harming those around you as you wear a biohazard around your face, touching it, moving its contents around, touching things around you, breathing its contents out into the world, leaving it on the table, on the ground, hanging from a rearview mirror. I know that's going to be a hard thing for people to consider, but Alan Stevo says the face mask on your face is more of a biohazard than any child is. Yet we treat children like the biohazard and face masks, those 10-cent polypropylene things from Wuhan, we treat like blessings. What a messed up existence that is. He says the only reason you should be wearing a face mask is because you think you should be wearing one. There's absolutely no other reason. If you wear a face mask today, you have no one but yourself to blame. That's the truth. Now he says, I don't want you to blame yourself. I just want you to stop wearing one. I get that it's hard to have a three-minute conversation with a stranger, letting them know you can't wear a mask safely. That's what passes for hard these days. I get that it's hard to look up a store phone number before you walk in the door and to speak to the manager first. That's what passes for inconvenience these days. I get that it's just easier to comply with evil. It always has been easier in the short term to comply with evil. It's always been more alluring in the short term to comply with evil. It's always been more enjoyable in the short term to comply with evil. I get it. He says doing what's right can be really hard sometimes. That doesn't change the fact that if you wear a mask, you only have yourself to blame. Literally, no one will force you to wear a mask if you put up the most basic level of resistance. So can you do that today? Now? The other option is to just comply and to see where that gets you. And it might be fine or it might not be. He says, I don't know the future. My guess is that the madness of last year does not stop with, of the, of the last year rather, does not stop without pushback. So the resources are out there for you to never wear a mask again. The resources are in this article for you to never wear a mask again. And I like his approach here. 
I haven't even had to use this, but then again, maybe I lead a little more sheltered life. But the phrase that works so well is to say the words, I'm unable to wear a face mask safely. Alan Stevo says a technique developed by myself and readers of LewRockwell.com that works so well is to speak to a person who has decision-making authority and to tell them, I see you have a face mask policy. I want to come through your front doors in five minutes. I am unable to wear a face mask safely. What can you do for me? Now, if you can take three minutes to make a phone call to a manager before you enter a store and to tell them that, he says you wouldn't believe how well this works. Now, he says, while I'm trying to figure out what's true and what's not true, he says, I can be pedantic to the point of inanity. I don't know how many people reading this would do what I did last night. I was attempting to enter the local Safeway. I was not going to wear a mask, as is the norm for me, and I just wanted to test this technique rather than just brazen through the door or rather using than using a handful of other techniques. So he says, I like using this technique. I like recommending this technique. I like testing it. I like theorizing about this technique so I can write about it and help other people use it. Unless I can do so in an expert fashion, I really have no business claiming to anyone that this works. Therefore, I practice these methods a lot, and I talk with others who do the same. So here's what he did. He called Safeway. He pushed eight for the customer service desk. Hold music played. The phone rang again. Brought him back to the switchboard. He pushed eight for the manager's desk. Hold music played. Some minutes later, the phone rang again, and again it brought him back to the switchboard. And this happened over and over again. He said, for 15 minutes, I waited on hold in an effort to test this technique and to see if it continued to work as well as it had the previous time. To continue to gauge the sentiment, to to continue to get a kind of feel for how a moment like this goes. To be able to get a feel for shifting corporate attitudes, trickling down and shifting societal attitudes. Now, he says, perhaps you understand from this example what I mean when I say I can be pedantic to the point of inanity while testing a theory. I test every option. I try to test against every variable. Variable. I, have to, I try to have a matrix in my head of what worked and what didn't work and to identify the weaknesses in my theory over and over again, testing and retesting. Now, he says, the detail of this theory that I observed last night was that if it takes more than a few minutes for a manager to pick up the phone, you should probably just enter the door and ask to speak to the manager. Speaking to the manager beforehand lets customers walk a little more proudly through the door, having been given permission to breathe freely by the person in charge, rather than walking about with the internal dialogue and posture of someone ready, you know, being ready for someone to come scold you. Now, alternatively, he says you can skip the manager's step and you could just go about your business. You'd be surprised at how few people working at the store actually care. Many now assume that if you are maskless, you belong maskless. So he says, I walked in the door of Safeway to the customer service stand. No one was there. I went toward the checkout. There were just two lanes open. One person frantically trying to make the machine work. The other person was frantically checking out a line of people. The man was not dressed in a uniform, but a pink button-down shirt. I said to him, sir, I'm looking for the manager. He said, I am the manager. I said, I'm not able to wear a face mask safely. I wanted to make sure it was okay for me to come through here. He said, well, if you got a medical thing, yeah, it's no problem. He shrugged his shoulders and he went back to what he was doing, which was running a customer's items through the scanner. It was practically a waste of his time for me to bring it up to him. But he says, I'm sure he appreciated hearing that from me. Probably appreciated getting a quick heads up in case someone was going to freak out on him or on me 
or perhaps even one of his employees, one of his virtue-signaling employees. But he says, you know what? He's got more important things to do than to worry about you or me not wearing a mask. Just like most people on the planet, the few who want to be busy busybodies, he says, need to be politely put in their place. Now, there is more, but I'm going to hold off. You can read the rest of this article. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please take a look at it. If you're so inclined, feel like sharing it with friends, well, by all means, do so. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. All right, I have, a, I have an article I want to share with you, and this is... This is a potentially touchy topic. And I say this also from the standpoint because I have a really dear friend who uh, I, I think I think is, is doing the very best that she can to be an influence for good. And she does a lot of good in her respective, you know, in her, in her sphere of influence. And she carries a lot of influence. But I, I have to ask this question. And this is not, you know, directed toward her. It's just directed towards anybody who might be pondering such a thing. Is it a waste of time trying to persuade the unpersuadable? Now, you understand, that's not the same as, you know, I've, I've made up my mind. You cannot be persuaded. Therefore, you are damned to hell. No, no, no. This is not pronouncing judgment on people. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, are you using your influence where it's going to count? The article is called The GOP's Impossible Dream of Swaying Black Voters. And Paul Gottfried is the author. This was found on intellectualtakeout.org. Give a listen. I think he has something worth considering here. He says, blacks are intensely devoted to the Democratic Party and to corrupt Democratic machines in urban areas, at least partly because they hate Republicans, the white man's party. Now, it makes no difference how often Fox News tells blacks that they're living on the Democratic plantation or that the Democrats are the party of slavery defender John C. Calhoun. They vote for Democrats, even segregationist Democrats like 1952 vice presidential candidate John Sparkman, because blacks have been irremovably in the Democratic camp since 1936. Now, Lipton Matthews addressed this issue in two recent commentaries on intellectualtakeout.org, generating some controversy. Paul Gottfried says, according to Matthews, the Republican Party and the political right in general are wasting their energy trying to convert black voters. Except for Donald Trump's ability to raise his share of the black vote from about 8% in 2016 to to about 12% in 2020, the returns on this recruiting investment have been paltry, making Republican efforts look ridiculous. This was especially true in the runoff race for the U.S. Senate in Georgia in January of this year when the black vote went overwhelmingly for the two far-left Democratic candidates, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. But he says Matthews may have been overly generous in explaining why Republican commentators have had trouble winning black Democrats. He says, personally, I think these party propagandists behave gauchly when they denounce their Southern conservative voters as bigots or call for removal of the Confederate stars and bars, even from racing cars, 
or scolding Joe Biden for properly opposing forced busing to achieve racially diverse public schools. Gottfried says, I doubt these Republican talking heads believe their tactics are going to sway the black Democratic masses. Nor will Fox News commentators like Sean Hannity and Steve Hilton make strides in this direction by filling their programs with enthusiastic black Republicans or by claiming that African Americans have joined their racially diverse populist movement en masse. He says all of this is for appearance, and it's intended to show that the speakers are nice, sensitive people whom the public could never reasonably accuse of systemic or any other kind of racism. Their rhetoric, therefore, may not really be aimed at attempting the impossible task of bringing droves of blacks to abandon their revulsion for the GOP and to change their voting and thinking patterns. Now, he says, saying what should be obvious does not mean that we're rejecting blacks as people. But we should recognize the limited utility of trying to convert groups that are generally hostile to conservatives. He says, I have members of my own family who are so fanatically devoted to the progressive left that I would never expend energy trying to change their minds. One should only try to sway the persuadable. And it should also be obvious by now that the Republican media are not accomplishing their stated goal in the way they beg or hustle black Democrats for votes. They wildly overestimate their effectiveness as recruiters and look particularly ridiculous when they pretend that blacks are the victims of a political party that most of them adore. Now, Lipton Matthews cited Candace Owen as an example of a black TV celebrity who has done well communicating the message, namely that black Democrats are the slaves of the black politicians they support and should therefore leave the plantation by voting for the GOP. Now, although Owens is an attractive young woman who speaks well, indeed far better than Sean Hannity, who plies her with infantile talking points, she's not convincing anyone whom she's supposed to be reaching with her eloquence. Nor is another pleasant-looking black woman, Kimberly uh, Classic, who ran for Congress almost in an almost entirely black district in Baltimore and was humiliating, defeated by the black nationalist Democrat, Quisium Fume. Now he says, I would have voted for Classic if I lived in her crime-ridden district, but then I'm not black. And Classic, who is now a Fox News contributor, received only 28% of the votes of her fellow blacks. So he says, if our talking heads were looking more practically for ways to gain votes for the GOP, going after blacks who loathe Republicans is not the best route to follow. There are lots of Irish and Italian Democrats who might be fruitfully pursued in New England, where he comes from, and indeed along the entire East Coast. Why not make the same concerted campaign to pick up their support instead of fruitlessly chasing after hostile black voters? But perhaps that Irish and Italian demographic is too white to please our Republican media who are fixed, who are fixed on virtue signaling. By the way, he says, there was a heartening swing of Hispanic votes in Florida and Texas in the last presidential race. And this may be something that Republicans can build on without the tasteless histrionics that have gone haplessly into chasing after, gone into haplessly chasing after black voters. You know, I don't think I make it uh, too big of a secret. My distaste for politics. And, and politics to me is, it's one of those places where tribalism finds a very ready outlet. And more often than not, it really brings out the worst in people. I mean, you see people qualifying, you know, well, I can be your friend, but only to this degree because you and I might disagree politically on that. 
somewhere, at some level, I hope we are capable of breaking out of that political spell that we are under, where we believe everything has to be filtered through some kind of a political lens, and you can just start looking at each other as, as people, as individuals, as human beings. Now I get it. There are people out there working that political system for all they, they can, and they're trying to do it to consolidate power. And by the way, it's not just limited to the left. They have the reins of power right now, so they're, they're working to take advantage of that while they can. But the right does it as well. I'm just thinking there might be a better way, and it involves uh, not politicizing things, not turning things into a power struggle, recognizing the individual natural rights of each person and respecting them. What a concept, right? Well, I'll leave a link here in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You may disagree, but uh, Paul Gottfried is, I I applaud him for at least advancing an idea that uh, may be worth considering. Is it time, is it a waste of time trying to persuade the unpersuadable? And if the answer is yes, then maybe we can find better use of our time. All right, two other topics we're going to get to before the end of the program this hour. Um, I want to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. I mean, I've been watching with great interest as, you know, Bitcoin has had this meteoric rise and then it dips. You know, Elon Musk last week talked about how he was no longer going to be accepting payment in Bitcoin for his Tesla vehicles. And uh, he talked about, uh, well, the reason is because uh, Bitcoin mining is so dangerous to the environment. And I just think, oh, really? Okay, that sounds like a virtue signal to me. But the bottom line is some people looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, this is the end of cryptocurrency. I have an article here from Thomas L. Knapp. This was from everything-voluntary.com. And he says, look, rumors of cryptocurrency's death are still greatly exaggerated. Now, he says, Elon Musk is a man of many skills. He didn't just make electric cars sexy. He sent one to space. And perhaps chief among his talents is the ability to roll markets by running his mouth. Lately, he's aimed that talent at cryptocurrency. In February, one of his companies, Tesla, announced that it had purchased $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin. In March, it announced it would accept Bitcoin for the purchase of its cars. Then in mid-May, Musk announced that Tesla was suspending vehicle purchases in Bitcoin over increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining and transactions. While mentioning that we are also looking at other cryptocurrencies that use less than 1% of Bitcoin's energy transaction. Well, naturally, the price of bitcoins in dollars crashed back to the old terrible level of February, only twice what it was worth in December. And naturally, the cryptocurrency naysayer chorus emerged from its groundhog hole to yell, told you so, just like they've been doing every other week since May 22, 2010, when Laszlo Hanyek paid 10,000 bitcoins, current value nearly half a billion dollars, for two pizzas. He says, sorry, guys, but bitcoin's not going away. And cryptocurrency in general certainly isn't. Yes, Bitcoin mining, the computer activity involved in processing transactions, is energy intensive. But he says, no, not all Bitcoin is mined using fossil fuels. In fact, many serious mining outfits specifically look for locations with cheap, plentiful hydroelectric power. And no, not all cryptocurrency mining is nearly as energy intensive as Bitcoin mining. So what is Musk up to? We'll touch on that when we return, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I'm sharing an article here from Thomas L. Knapp. This is from everythingvoluntary.com. Rumors of cryptocurrency's death are still greatly exaggerated. Now, he's taking a pretty hard look here at Elon Musk and asking, what is Musk up to? After all, one of the big swings in Bitcoin happened this last week when Musk announced, okay, well, uh, Tesla will no longer be accepting payment in Bitcoin because it uses too many energy resources. And the question Thomas Knapp has is, okay, what is Musk up to? Is he just having fun upsetting Apple carts or is there a business method behind his madness? He says, financier and former Trump White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci thinks he knows. Scaramucci suggests with a small hypothetical wager of one two hundredth of a Bitcoin that Musk's next big cryptocurrency play will be to send Tesla's energy subsidiary into super clean Bitcoin mining. Now, that would be a smart move from both directions. It would reduce the financial and environmental costs of mining while giving solar and wind power a boost in their fight to displace fossil fuels generally. The technology underlying underlying cryptocurrency is sound, and he says it will survive and it will become dominant. The only question is whether it will completely displace or be at least partially co-opted by government monetary schemes. Hopefully, it's the former. Completely displace it. Getting government out of the money business would be a gigantic leap for human freedom and prosperity. Maybe even a step toward getting government out of business entirely. Well, I guess we'll see. Again, there will be a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I just have this sneaking suspicion I really should be putting some money into cryptocurrency. Even if it's Dogecoin or whatever, I, I probably need to be doing that. As usual, though, I tend to procrastinate. All right, one final article I wanted to share with you. Um, look, the issue of gun control, this is a source of a lot of anxiety to a lot of people. I have reached the point where I don't even get anxious anymore. When politicians start talking about, wow, we need common sense gun control and we're going to do this to repeal the Second Amendment. I'm not bothered. And I guess it's because at some level I realize what they are suggesting is impossible. It's not going to happen. If you look at firearm sales just for the past year, it's very clear that there are a lot of people who are looking around them and saying, boy, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think I probably should have something like this because I have seen with my own eyes, you know, or I've seen the news stories that make it very clear in my moment of need, the state may not be there to protect me. And by the way, there's nothing paranoid about that realization. That's, this is part and parcel of the responsibility that goes along with living as a free soul. So I'm going to share with you an article from Dr. Harold Pease about how gun control cannot work. And it's not just because it's bad public policy, but it can't work because it violates natural law. I love the example that he shares here. He says, safety is probably the natural right most easily explained and is based primarily on the presumption that people have the right to exist and will naturally first flee from danger. And then, if unsuccessful, will arm themselves regardless of what the law may or may not say or permit. Nature's law will never allow gun confiscation to be fully implemented in a free America. He says, I learned this lesson my first year teaching college in California many years ago. A Mexican gang led by a black attacked two white students in the college quad because they were white. 
Now he says, as the nearest faculty member available, I intervened only to have the students flee, and I alone faced perhaps a dozen thugs I'd never seen before who hated me only for the color of my skin. On the ground, unable to comprehend what was happening to me, he says, I took a boot every time I raised my head. Another faculty member came into the quad and, being white, also was attacked. Half the group left me to attack him. Eventually, we were able to escape behind a nearby classroom door. When police arrived, the leader of the gang threatened to kill me if I identified him. A day later, a student highway patrolman secretly gave me a can of mace, at the time, illegal. This will take care of 20, he told me. And I carried it for years, says Howard, says Harold Pease. He says, giving that mace to me would have cost him his job and mine. But his point is, neither of us cared. Safety was the issue. Thousands fled socialist countries as it enveloped their country. Hundreds risked their lives going over the Berlin Wall once socialism was embedded in eastern Germany. Hundreds of thousands fled to the South in Korea and Vietnam or on boats away from Cuba to America, and the same is so from Venezuela in our day. It was once said that communism could end tomorrow in China if everyone were issued a handgun tonight. You might miss the shooting the next day if you slept in. Certainly more than a million Uyghurs in slave labor camps would take their religious freedom back and end the genocide in China. Thousands are escaping socialist-leaning states like California, Oregon, Washington, Michigan, New York, and New Jersey under excessive, even tyrannical rule by their democratic governors, exceeding that of the tyranny of King George III. He says here, political refugees are finding freedom from excessive government in Florida, Texas, Idaho, Utah, and South Dakota, Republican-led states who refuse to lock down their citizens. Now, Harold P. says, residents feel uneasy when society or government appeared unstable, as in 2020 when Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots were staged in most major cities in America, even near the White House, especially in Democratic-controlled cities. He says this was especially so when nowhere condemned by Democratic Party leadership or their media. When statues were torn down, inner city buildings and automobiles set afire, Molotov cocktails thrown at police, and thugs occupied downtown Seattle and Portland, people did not feel safe. When George Soros financed district attorneys in Chicago, L.A., and St. Louis were setting criminals free as fast as they were arrested, it resulted in concern for normal people. When a senior citizen couple living in a private gated community in St. Louis, Missouri, threatened to use firearms to protect themselves and their property from a mob of thugs who broke down the gate, the couple themselves were arrested instead of the thugs, and all Americans felt unsafe. This could happen to me. If the government won't protect me, I must. Now, the Democrat solution to runaway crime has been the following. To allow convicts to vote, to release inmates back on the streets during the Wuhan China virus, to same-day release arsonists, looters, and Molotov cocktail throwers in our cities during the social unrest of 2020. To deny potential victims the means of protecting themselves through confiscatory gun laws. To open our borders to every thug in the world, and most insane of all, to defund, disarm, cancel, and victimize law enforcement those willing to risk their lives in the defense of others to maintain a civil society. Those who spoke out against these dangerous practices, like Tucker Carlson, 
could expect a mob of thugs to do property damage to their homes or threaten bodily harm to his wife and children who had to hide in a closet for protection. And Harold P. says, my point, the more these practices become common and anarchy and lawlessness reigns, the more the victims and innocents seek a gun to protect themselves. Natural law, whether it's legal or not. When cities like Chicago, where a person shot every two hours, have the toughest gun laws, but the most gun violence, it's obvious that what Democrats, because they are the government in most of these cities of chaos, propose does not, has not, and will not work because their measures violate natural law. Yet they want to spread their chaos to the whole nation and leave the weak and innocent perpetual victims. Natural law postulates when cities defund police and people do not feel protected, they will flee first, then arm themselves for for protection, whether legal or not. Now here are some other natural laws relating to guns. When guns are outlawed, only outlaws will have them. It takes a gun to stop gun violence and police can't get there in time. Good people will acquire firearms in proportion to their threat of danger. Violence begets violence. If a gun is not available, a knife, bat, or perhaps poison is. Mass shootings almost always occur in gun-free zones like schools, theaters, supermarkets, because would-be shooters know they are not likely to be confronted with someone who can shoot back. And finally, there's never been a gun in the history of the world found to have, by itself, killed anyone. Gun confiscation and individual liberty are oxymorons. So, I don't know, if you don't feel strongly on the gun issue, you know, this is one you can just pass on by. If you do feel strongly about this issue, and especially if you're feeling concerned, thinking, man, you know, these politicians really want to lock it down, you know, and and especially from the federal level, This has always been kind of that fantasy. Well, we just want common sense gun control. We could just get these assault weapons off the street and whatnot. What I am gathering from what uh, Dr. Harold Pease is pointing out is, look, right or wrong, if you feel threatened, if I feel threatened, like my family is in danger, I'm going to do what's necessary to protect them, regardless of what a politician's words on paper may say. I take my chances with the jury, and I think most of us would. Not because we're bad people or outlaws, but because we understand our rights and we're willing to claim, use, and defend them. This is The Brian Hyde Show.